First of all, of course, our congratulations to both of you for having been awarded the Abel Prize for this year. And this prize has been given to you in our quote for the discovery and the proof of the index theorem connecting geometry and analysis in a surprising way. But both of you have an impressive list of uh, fine achievements in mathematics. We'd like you to give us some comments about the history of the discovery of the index theorem. For example, what were the first indications making a result of this type plausible and were there precursors, conjectures in this direction already before you started? Were there only mathematical motivations or also physical ones? What made you start working on it back in 1962? I think the point is that you know, mathematics is always a continuum. Things have a history, the past, and they carry on. Nothing comes out of zero. And certainly, uh, index theorem is simply a you know, continuation of work that I like to say began with Abel. So, of course, there are precursors and lots of ways. And also, the other thing is to say that when you have a theorem, it's never, uh, it's never arrived at by the way that logical thought would lead you to believe or that posterity thinks history can. It's usually much more accidental. Some chance discovery, question, you know, and then eventually you can rationalize it and say this is how it fits in. So these things that are discovered never happen, you know, as neatly as, as that. But they certainly had lots of things beforehand and uh, uh, many different, different directions. You can trace back the, the history and lots of roots. As to the relationship with other things in physics, well, I'll ask is to hand that one because he's been saying something about the physics anyway. At the time we proved the index theorem, we saw how important it was in mathematics, but we had no inkling that it would have such a effect on physics some years down the road. So that came as a complete surprise to us. Uh, perhaps it shouldn't have been a surprise because it used a lot of geometry. It used some quantum mechanics in a way a la Dirac. So looking back, uh, perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised. Well, both of you contributed to the index theorem with different expertise and visions, and other con uh, people had a share as well, I suppose. Could you describe this collaboration a bit closer, in the collaboration in the establishment of the result? I came with a background in analysis and differential geometry, and, uh, well, Sir Michael can speak for himself, but I would say his expertise was in algebraic geometry and topology, and somehow for the purposes of the index theorem, these two just fit together uh, hand in glove. And moreover, in a way, our personalities fit together in that um, I would say anything goes. Let's make a suggestion, what, whatever it was, you would just uh, put it on the blackboard and work with it and. Uh, we would both be enthusiastically explore it, and if it didn't work, it didn't work. But often enough, some idea that seemed far-fetched, we explored, it did work, and we both had the kind of freedom to just continue uh, without worrying about uh, where it came from or where it fit or anything like that. And uh, it's kind of exciting, from my point of view, to work with Sir Michael all these years. And it's, it's true today as it was when we first met in 55 that sense of excitement that anything goes and let's see what happens with what we've got. I mean, as the expert, far as expertise goes, he's got it quite right. I mean, his expertise, his background was in uh, well, analysis, uh, different geometry, and he knew more physics than I did, which came in useful later on. 
Um, my background was in algebraic geometry and topology, and so it all came together. But of course, a lot of people contributed in the background of build-up the index theorem. You know, I say going back to Arbel and Riemann and, and heaven knows, but much more recently, Sarah, who got the, the Arbel Prize last year, Hitzbrock, Grotendieck. So there's lots of work from the algebraic geometry side and topology, which will all prepare the ground, if you like, and was around. So, and of course, there are also um, a lot of people who did fundamental work in analysis and study of differential equations, the equations, Holman, uh, Nuremberg. So, you know, I'll, my lecture, I will give a long list of names, even that is only partial. So, you know, it's part of a big you know, international collaboration, cultural effort. So, you know, you don't work in isolation, either, either in terms of time or in terms of space. I mean, especially these days, in mathematics is so linked. Uh, people, and of course we travel around much more. We, we met in the Institute in Princeton, mm -hmm. and I met many of these other people. So it, we formed a sort of, and I used to go to the Arbeitstagung in Bonn every year, which Hitzburg organized, where most, many of these people would come. So there's a lot of ideas which have moved around very fast. In fact, when I look back on some of these things, I was very surprised how quickly things moved, because, you know, people met each other, and within a year, the ideas traveled around, and of course, bots work on the so it was very fast, um, very fast moving. I didn't realize at the time, but looking back, I said, good Lord, it only happened in a few years. Mm -hmm. it, so because, it, because we had this chance to meet yeah. and interact and uh, lots of different places. In the old days, interaction was much slower. It took longer. Yeah. There weren't so many people to help yeah. out. Yeah. Now it's very fast. So. You worked out at least three different proofs with different strategies for the index theorem. So why don't you... Keep on after the first proof. And what <laughs> well, different insights? Well, do, can I just make a comment? You know, I think I think it's, I think it was said that Gauss had ten different proofs of the law of quadratic reciprocity. Yeah. And any good theorem should have the more proofs, the better. For two reasons: usually different proofs have different um, strengths and weaknesses, and they generalize in different directions. So they, they they're not just repetitions of each other. And this is certainly the case of the proofs that we came up. There are different reasons for the proofs. There are different histories, backgrounds. And uh, some of them are, are good for some applications, and some are good for other applications. So they all shed light on the thing. Uh, and so, in fact, there are probably more of them now. So, th yeah, the more proofs. I mean, a really good theorem. If you have only one proof, it's a dull theorem. If you can't give, if you can't climb a mountain from different directions to follow his example, it's not a very interesting mountain. <laughs> but these are these are things that you can really have many perspectives on. And the more perspectives, the, the better. And so that's. You see, there isn't just one theorem. Yeah. There are generalizations of the theorem, and there are. It can be made more specific. It can be made more general, and so the other proofs have done that. Uh, one is the family's index theorem. The heat equation proof gives the formulas that are topological and makes them geometric and explicit. Uh, so each proof uh, has its merit and has different applications. Uh, I think the people who, who use this thing that come from different directions don't always realize that, well, the proof that they know is, is okay, but there are other proofs which are better for other purposes. Yeah. There's no single yeah. best proof. And that's why you also could call it a theory rather than a theory. That's, that's right. exactly, yeah. it's definitely a theory. Yeah. It, it's sort of not one thing, it's many-sided. Yeah. We talked already a little bit about it, but maybe a question about collaboration in general. So nowadays, as you already said, the collaboration seems to play a bigger role in mathematics than, than, than earlier. Lots of conferences, many more pap uh, papers that are written by two, three, or even more authors. So is this a necessary and a commendable development, or has it drawbacks as well? Has tight 
collaboration become something that is necessary for progress in mathematics? I don't think, you know, I, I think it's not like in physics or in chemistry or high where you have 50 authors because you need an enormous big machine. It's not absolutely, absolutely fundamental, necessary in that sense. But particularly when you're dealing with areas which are rather mixed and interdisciplinary background, the fact that you have people with different uh, expertise and background makes it much easier to make progress. You, you, so you, I think progress is faster if you have different people with, from different backgrounds in, interacting. Uh, and so that's a good thing. Uh, it's also, I think, of course, uh, much more interesting for the participants. I mean, doing mathematics on your own in your office is you know, it's a bit dull. You know? If you interact, so you could, the interaction is, is, is stimulating uh, both psychologically as well as mathematically. So I, I think it's a good thing. So if you, know, if you want to get the message across to younger people, I think <clears throat> one shouldn't get the message that mathematics is just a sort of solitary. You know, there are times when you go in your office and you just, and some mathematicians do it all the time. Uh, but uh, it can also be a social activity, interaction with, and you need a good mix. You need, you need both too. You can't spend all your time talking, but <laughs> since some of your time talking is very, very stimulating. Good stimulus, yeah. And so I think it's a, it's a, it is a good development. And that does, I don't see any drawbacks. It's all positive. Certainly computers have made that uh, collaboration so much easier. And although I don't do it, I see some of my friends, they're collaborating by a computer instantly. Uh, it's as if they're talking to each other. Of course, a sobering counterexample to this whole trend is Perlman's work on the Poincaré conjecture, where he went into hiding. Well, as you know, he went into hiding for some years and thought privately about these matters. Well, Andrew Wiles only. And I was about to, I was about to mention Andre Wiles. That's a bit different because at least number theory had reached the point where it appeared that uh, progress was imminent, and then he retired, withdrew in order to prove the theorem. Uh, but in the case of uh, Perlman, uh, he really did withdraw alone for some years, I think 10 to 12 years, um, working on the Poincaré conjecture. But fortunately, you know, there are many different kinds of mathematicians. Both they work on different subjects, they have different approaches, they have different personalities, and that's a good thing. We don't want all mathematicians to be isomorphic, you know. You want variety, because that leads to, you know, different, different, different mountains need different kinds of techniques to climb. I want to sort of have your comments on the interplay between mathematics and physics. And uh, let me just start by a uh, statement by Galilei that you know very well, namely his famous uh, dictum that dates from the very beginning of the scientific revolution, uh, uh, which says that the laws of nature are written in the language of mathematics. And uh, I'm not going to ask just a general question, what is uh, the nature of this interplay, but a more specific one, which I really find very intriguing, and I would very much like your comments on. So why is it that the object of mathematical creation, which satisfy the criteria of beauty and simplicity, are precisely the ones that time and time again are found to be essential for a correct description of the external world? I mean, you have group theory, you have the Atiyah-Singer index theorem. Why is it that this that came from mathematics turns out to be so useful in, in physics? Well, there are a number of approaches to trying to answer this question, and I'll try several. Uh, first, some parts of mathematics were developed in order to describe the world around us, and the calculus 
as an example of a subject that began uh, explaining the motion of planets and the motion of moving objects. And so uh, developments from calculus like differential equations, integral equations, integrals, all that is very natural in physics because it was developed for purposes of physics. Uh, other things are also natural for physics. I remember lecturing in uh, Feynman's seminar once trying to explain something and his postdocs kept wanting to pick coordinates in order to compute and he stopped them saying the laws of physics are independent of a coordinate system. And so listen to what Singer has to say because he's describing the situation without coordinates. Now to say something is without coordinates means that you're talking about geometry in a way. Uh, so it's natural that a geometric approach appear in physics if things are independent of the coordinate system. And also it's natural that symmetries would be used in physics. It simplifies. The motivation of symmetries in math are very much the same as the motivation of symmetries in physics. Beauty aside, symmetries simplify. And originally, uh, symmetries of a differential equation simplified the equation so it was an uh, ordinary differential equation. And that's the motivation of much symmetry in, in physics. So, uh, physics and math have in common <coughs> geometry and symmetries and uh, in that respect it's not surprising to see a close connection between the two. Now there's a deeper reason from my point of view that would answer the question of uh, what was the title of that book, The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Wigner's uh, yes, yes, nice yes. title. Effectiveness right. uh, of mathematics and physics. Yes. yes. The unreasonable <coughs> effectiveness of mathematics. And there I want to dig deeper. I feel that mathematics studies coherent systems. I won't try and define that term because I can't. Uh, but it studies coherent systems, the connections between such systems, the structure of such, such systems. So it shouldn't be too surprising that if you're looking at the outside world that presumably is a coherent system, that mathematics developed elsewhere, some of it will have a coherent system in it which is just applicable to describing the coherent system that you're focusing on. Uh, it remains to be seen whether for example, in the present era of trying to understand what string theory is all about, which we don't understand at all, whether there's already developed a coherent system in mathematics that will be, will describe uh, what the structure of string theory really is. We don't even know what the uh, symmetry group of string field theory is. Um, remains to be seen whether we already have that coherent system or whether as Witten would say, it's 21st century mathematics that has to be developed, meaning a new coherent system, perhaps in conjunction with physics intuition about uh, the structure of string theory, that that coherent system will develop. So I don't find it that surprising that the two subjects are really very close.
together. I very much agree with his, his description of mathematics having a lot of it evolved out of the physical world, and therefore it's not being surprising that it has a feedback into it. But, and there's another, another side, which is also a little bit deeper that I'd like to say. That is, that the whole, and why, why beauty and so on are good criteria for f physical reality. And that is, that the, the whole of, of the inquiry of natural science, which is, you know, human beings try to understand the outside world, is in a sense an attempt to reduce complexity to simplicity. What is a theory? A theory, I mean, there are, there are a lot of things happen in the outside world, and the aim of scientific inquiry is to reduce this to a simple number of principles as you possibly can. That's, that's because that's the way the human mind works. works. That's the way the human mind wants to see the answer. We, are, we want that kind of answer. That's what the nature of our question is. So if I tell some people, if, you, if, if we were computers, which can tabulate vast amounts of storage of information, we wouldn't, we would never develop theories. We'd simply say, this, this is life. You know, here, press the button, you get the answer. So we want to reduce this complexity to a form which the human mind can understand, a few simple principles. That's the nature of scientific inquiry. And mathematics is part of that. Well, mathematics is the way, it says the human brain, mathematics is an evolution from the human brain, which has responded to outside influences, created the machinery, which it attacks the outside world with. And it's our way of trying to reduce complexity to simplicity and beauty and elegance and are simply some of the criteria we use to find things which are simple. So I think it's, a, it's a very, very fundamental that simplicity is in the nature of scientific inquiry. We don't look for complicated things. Maybe there are complicated ways of looking at the world, but they're not what we're looking for. This seems <laughs> like a Kantian view you're just exposed. It totally is. I mean, yeah. I think I'm trying to say that it, it, it's, it isn't, you know, when you ask whether these are things that belong to the reality or whether they are things we impose on the human mind, I think, you know, my tendency is to go to say science and mathematics are things that the, the way the human mind looks at experience. You cannot divorce the human mind from it because that's the way, what's happening. And mathematics is part of the human mind. The idea, question of whether there is reality independent of the human mind, which you could look at totally differently, is a question that probably has no meaning. Or at least we can't answer it. Um, well, this is a statement that maybe I want you to comment on, but is it too strong, I mean, uh, from what you now have said, to say that mathematical problems that have been solved and techniques that have been developed that came from physics or that this was inspired by physics have been the lifeblood of mathematics in the past or at least over the last 25 years? Is that a too strong statement? I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it could be interpreted as a strong statement. And mathematics, large parts of mathematics, almost all mathematics, originally arose from external reality, even numbers, counting, you know, practical work. At some point, mathematics moves into a higher realm where you start to ask internal questions. Theory of prime numbers is not directly related to experience. It's evolved out of it. So there are parts of mathematics where the human mind asks internal questions just out of curiosity. And their origin may have been physical, but eventually it becomes something independent. There are other parts which are much closer to the outside world, and there's much more interaction backwards and forwards. And in that part of it, of course, physics has for a long time been the lifeblood of mathematics, inspiration for mathematical work. It, it was for a long time. There are times when it goes out of fashion, or parts of mathematics which evolve purely internally. You know, lots of abstract mathematics doesn't directly relate to the outside world. So it's a combination of the two, and it's one of the strengths of mathematics. It has these two, not single lifeblood, but <laughs> one external and one internal. One arising out of response to external events, the other of internal reflection on our, what we're doing. And the two together are what makes mathematics what it is, I think. I think the statement that she read it is a bit strong. 
I agree with what Michael says. Uh, it's a combination of the two. But um, I would say that prior to the last 20 odd years, mathematics was not accustomed to having um, influence from the outside be so effective. And so many mathematicians have been shocked since the mid 70s with new ideas coming from outside the field. Uh, and I think it's wonderful that these new ideas are there. But in a sense, the effect has been exaggerated, and so I find that statement a bit uh, strong. <laughs> All journalistic statements are exaggeration. <laughs> uh, could, I, could I move into um, new development, in, in, uh, especially with impact from the Atiyah Singer index theorem? And uh, I'm thinking about string theory on the one hand, and of course a central name there is Edward Witten, and then on the other hand non-commutative geometry, a central name there is Alan Kahn. Uh, could you describe the different approaches to mathematical physics that uh, epitomized by these two protagonists? I mean, they represent different views or different angles to attack uh, problems in mathematical physics. Well, I, I, I once gave a, a, a sort of, I had to give a talk on an occasion when I tried to describe the different approaches to progress in physics as like you know, different religions. The, 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 you have prophets who have followers, you know, and each, each prophet and his followers think they have the, the, the sole possession of the truth. Uh, and then, of course, there are, if you take the point, strict point of view, and there are several different religions, and you say, well, the intersection of all these theories is empty, so they're all talking nonsense. Or you can take the view of the mystic, who says they're all talking about different aspects of reality, so all of them are correct. And I, I tend to take the second view. I mean, I think you know, the, the main orthodox view of high energy physicists are certainly represented by the people who work in string theory and Ed Witten, and there's a very large group. There are a small number of people who are, have different philosophies. One of whom is Alan Conn, and the other of whom is Roger Penrose, very different. Each of them has a very specific point of view, uh, much, much smaller uh, sort of coterie and, and uh, not so ambitious in there. But each of them has very interesting ideas, which, interestingly enough, within the last few years, there have been non-trivial interactions with all of these. So, you know, the idea that they are all different aspects of reality and eventually when we understand it all, you'll say, ah, yes, they all saw, you know, part of the truth. I think that will happen. And so and it's difficult to say you know, which will be dominant or in the, when you finally understand the picture, we don't know. But I, I tend to be open-minded. I like to have different, you know, don't like... The trouble with a lot of physicists is they have a bandwagon effect. You know, you follow the leader, and as soon as the new idea comes up, you ten people come in and, and write ten more papers on it, and it, it, it moves, means that the subject can move very fast in a technical direction. But it does mean that, that people always f follow one set of ideas, and sometimes the big progress may come from a different direction. You do need people who are outside and the, exploring different avenues, and it's very good that there are people like Alan Conn or Roger Penrose who have their own independent line and, and uh, which has different origins very often. So I, I'm in favor of diversity of, of, of point of view because if you follow one particular leader, he may be leading you over the cliff. <laughs> you know, it, it may not be the necessarily, although I don't think, I mean, I think that all of them are really have some, something important to say, but I tend to be, I prefer to be open-minded and not say, close the door. Some people say, this chap's talking nonsense, this chap's talking nonsense. I like to be open-minded. Yes. String theory is a uh, very 
special situation at the present time. Uh, they have found new solutions on the landscape, uh, so many of them that you can't expect to make predictions from string theory, so that uh, its original promise uh, have not been fulfilled. Nevertheless, it's just an incredible, I'm an enthusiastic uh, supporter of uh, super string theory not just because of what it's done in mathematics, but just as a coherent whole. It's a marvelous subject. Uh, but every five to ten years, if not more often, there's something new that happens in the theory that gives you additional insight. Uh, and then when that happens, you realize that you didn't understand string theory at all beforehand. D-Brains is one of the last ones that entered the subject and really uh, explained a lot more than one understood before. And often with these new insights, there's mathematics closely associated with it. The moment D-Brains occurred, K-theory entered, uh, string theory almost instantly thereafter, if it, in a new way. Uh, so I think we just have to wait to see uh, what will happen. I'm quite confident that uh, physics, if you look at the past, will come up with some new ideas in string theory that will give us greater insight into the structure of the subject, and with, along with it will come some mathematics. Elaine's program is very uh, natural. The idea that if you want to combine geometry with quantum mechanics, then you really want to quantize geometry, and that's what non-commutative geometry means. And non-commutative geometry has been used in a lot of, of effectively in various parts of uh, string theory, explaining what happens with certain singularities, for example. Uh, it's uh, very effective. Um, I actually think that it's an interesting way of trying to explain uh, black holes, an interesting way of trying to explain the Big Bang. And so I would encourage young physicists to understand non-commutative geometry a lot more than they presently do. Physicists use it in a, in a very restrictive way, much more so than the theory has to offer. And I think that's a very interesting avenue to pursue. Whether it's going to lead anywhere or not, I don't know. But I feel strongly enough about it that it's one of my projects to try and redo the results already there using non-commutative geometry, to redo it in a more refined way and just see where it leads. Well, if, if you should venture a guess, um, which mathematical areas do you think are going to witness the most important development, development in, the, in the coming years? Of course, you have probably touched on some of these already, but... Uh, you mean across the whole of mathematics? Or, yes, uh, across the whole of mathematics. Well, you know, I mean, I think one quick answer is the, the, the things which... Uh, the most exciting developments are the ones you can't predict. If you can predict, it's not so exciting. 
So by definition, your question has no answer. But um, I, I can predict at a certain level, I think that uh, you know, these ideas of physics that have come in, quantum theory and so on, have had a big impact so far in uh, geometry, some parts of algebra, in topology, enormous change impact, spread lots and lots of examples. So far, the impact on number theory has been quite small. There are some examples. I, I, I would like to make a rash prediction, which I mean, that it will have a big impact on number theory, uh, you know, as, as the ideas flow across mathematics. You know, you think of this end as number theory, and that end is physics, in the middle is geometry, and the, the wind is blowing, and it will eventually reach to the farthest extremities of number theory and, you know, give us a, a new point of view, and many things at the moment are done with old-fashioned ideas will be done with new ideas. This is my... My, you know, the kind of dream I would like to see happen, but of course, whether it'll happen or not. It could be the Riemann hypothesis. It could be the Langlands program. It could be, I think, uh, uh, lots of things uh, which I think might be all related. The kind of thing, hard bits of number, uh, people number theory that people study, you know, including Andrew Wiles. I've had arguments with Andrew Wiles about this. I, I tell him this is my physics will one day have a big impact on your kind of number theory. He says nonsense, and so you know, we we have a good argument. <laughs> But I think that's a, it's a, it's, I've made this prediction quite a long time before, and begin, you begin to see now some directions in which it's moving, and I have some rather more precise ideas. So that's a kind of a meta, you can, at a general level, you may predict something like that might happen because you see what's happening in other fields. But of course, as I say, the really exciting things are breakthroughs which, which you can't predict. Somebody suddenly comes up in this work of Perelman, well, it was perhaps, perhaps we could expect it to happen sometime, but, and uh, so there are, and I think that the, and then I think, in some sense, I would make another prediction, rash one, which is that the fundamental progress on the physics, mathematics front, the string theory question, will emerge from a very much more thorough understanding of, uh, you know, uh, classical four-dimensional geometry of Einstein's equations and so on. I think that the, you know, the hard part of physics, in some sense, is the nonlinearity of Einstein's equations. And everything that's being done at that moment is skirting around these things in lots of ways. And they haven't really, hasn't really got the grips with the hardest part. And I, I half think that the, 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 the big progress will come when people buy some new technique or new ideas really get to grips with that in a big way. And that might be, a, you know, whether you call that geometry or differential equations or physics, it depends what happens. But it could be, you know, one of the big breakthroughs that will happen. So, you know, you ask for speculations, those are my speculations. <laughs> but I say, with the proviso that... It's unexpected that's always interesting, and so by definition. Well, uh, you're asking us to be speculative. I'll be speculative in a slightly different way, although I agree with the number theory comments that Sir Michael mentioned, particularly theta functions entering uh, from physics uh, in a new ways. Uh, I think other fields of physics will effect mathematics, like uh, statistical mechanics, condensed matter physics. So I would predict there's going to be a new subject of statistical topology. Uh, you won't just count the number of holes, Betty number, but you'll be talking about non-compact uh, manifolds, and uh, you will be more interested in the distribution of the twists that they have as you go out to infinity. We already have 
uh, precursors of that in uh, the number of zeros and poles uh, for holomorphic functions. But the theory that we have for holomorphic functions, I think, will be generalized, and the insights will come from uh, condensed matter physics in terms of uh, what statistically what the topology should look like. So in general, I would say now that theoretical physics has had such an impact on mathematics and vice versa, and, and condensed matter physics, mathematics has had considerable impact, uh, both the index theorem and Chern-Simons theory, I think that it will have impact on mathematics in the next decade or so. I, I will switch a little and uh, talk a little about uh, the problem with um, uh, fragmentation, specialization within mathematics. And some people lament the fragmentation and specialization of mathematics, but you have been fighting this throughout your careers. Uh, so my question is, what is, that what is it that unites different mathematical disciplines? Is there a core holding things together? Do you see a danger for that things that sort of spread and without... Well, I, I, I like to think that there is a core holding things together. Of course, I like to think the core is rather what I look at. But, you know, we tend to be rather uh, egocentric. Um, you know, the, the traditional parts of mathematics which evolved from geometry and calculus and algebra, which all centre around certain notions. But, of course, as mathematics develops, there are new things break out. There are things which appear to be far from the centre, going off in different directions, which I perhaps don't know much about. And sometimes they become rather important for the whole nature of mathematical enterprise. So I think it's a bit dangerous to restrict the definition of the means just to, you know, whatever you happen to understand yourself or think about. So I think I want us to be a bit careful. Uh, there are parts of mathematics which are very combinatorial, for example, which uh, sometimes they also are very closely related to the continuous parts, and that's very good. We've had very interesting sort of links between combinatorics and algebraic geometry and so on, but sometimes they may be related to other things, or statistics, History. So I think mathematics has, has is very difficult to constrain. Also, the new applications of mathematics going off in different directions. So it's nice to th nice to think of mathematics as having a unity, but you don't want it to be a straitjacket. You, you know, you want it to all be connected. You want a kind of central, but you want also to be have connections to the all the other parts. And the center of gravity may change with time, and so it's it's, it's not necessarily a fixed rigid object in that sense. I think it should develop and flow. So you, you, uh, my own personal philosophy is I like to think of mathematics as having a core, but I don't want it to be totally rigidly defined so as to exclude things which might be interesting. You don't want somebody to come along and say, I discovered something, I say, well, no, you're outside, you're not doing mathematics, you're playing around. You, you never know, that maybe might be the mathematics of the next century. So you've got to be, uh, you've got to be careful. Um, very often new, new ideas when they come in are regarded as a bit you know, recherche, very ab abstruse and not really central to, new, because they look ab too abstract or something like that. So I, I think it's a, it's, it's a tricky question. It's a, like all good questions, it's, it has sort of many answers. But I think there is a, is, a, is a kind of core, but it shouldn't be made too rigid. Countries different, differ in how they treat the problem of specialization and how specialized one should become as a mathematician. I certainly agree algebra, geometry, analysis, topology are all the basics of pure mathematics anyway. 
uh, what I observe in the states is that there is a drive to specialize early because of uh, economic problems. Uh, you have to show your ability early. <clears throat> you have to get letters of recommendation. You know the whole the letters of recommendation. You have to find first jobs. Uh, you can't afford to branch out uh, before you've established yourself. And so there is a narrowness uh, that is uh, coercive and brought on by realities of life. Um, I'm ever hopeful that we can solve those problems and give young people more flexibility to explore, whether it's explore other fields of mathematics or to explore uh, mathematics and connections with other subjects, particularly biology these days, <clears throat> where there's lots to be discovered. Whether we can do that with new resources that would allow them more freedom than they presently have. Certainly, when I was young, I didn't feel those effects because the job market was so good. So it didn't, yes, it was important to be at a major university, but if you weren't there, it wasn't a matter of you're not getting any job, you could move to a smaller one and still prosper. Uh, whereas these days, with job markets as they are, uh, there's an awful lot of pressure on young people. And I'm distressed by it, and I'd like to see more resources put into mathematics in order for young people to have the freedom of choice that we certainly had when we were young. Uh, sort of a follow-up to this question is, again, this uh, continuity of mathematics. And uh, I uh, have this uh, Gedanken experiment that uh, I would like you to comment on. So if, say, Gauss or Abel were to reappear in our midst, do you think they could understand the problems being tackled by the present generation of mathematicians? Because I think the point that I was trying to make there was that the really important progress in mathematics is somewhat independent of technical jargon. Now, we have our language, and, and uh, it's all coarse in jargon, but the really important ideas can be explained to a really good mathematician like Newton or Gauss or this, you know, uh, in conceptual terms. Uh, it says coordinate-free, I mean, more than that, technology-free in, in the sense of jargon-free. You don't need to talk about ideals and modules or you know, whatever it is, sheaves. You could talk in common language of, of scientists and mathematicians, continuity or limits. And, and so I think, uh, in that sense, the really important progress that mathematics has made over 200 years or 300 years could easily be understood by people like Garzon. Only a short refresher course, they would have to be told a few terms to make what sense, uh, and they would immediately understand. I think, I, I believe that. I mean, I believe that math mathematics is, has a sort of a, uh, something which overrides technology, the, te the technical terms that are used. We use these technical terms. Actually, one of the things that my pet aversions is that many mathematicians write too much in technical terms. They write, they talk, because very often they were trained in a way that saying, if you don't say it 100% correctly, like lawyers, you will be you know, taken to court. So every statement has to be fully precise and covered. I like to, when I'm talking to other people or scientists, use words which are not part of the, I mean, use only words which are common to the scientific community, not, not necessarily just to the mathematical community. And I think it's very often possible. So I think in that sense, if you explain ideas <coughs> without the 
<coughs> a vast amount of technical jargon and, and formalism that we created, I'm sure it wouldn't take long. I mean, they would, they were bright guys, those chaps. They could. <laughs> I hope so. One, one of my teachers at Chicago was Andre Bay, and I remember his saying, if Riemann were here, I'd put him in the library for a week, and when he came out, he would tell us what to do next. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. This is a question concerning communication of mathematics, and um, uh, I, I, I'm sort of personally very, very engaged in, in this type of question. I mean, um, I, let, let me start with a very famous citation by Hilbert in his uh, speech at the International Congress in 1900. He, he, to make a point about the communication, he cited a French mathematician who said that a mathematical theory is not to be considered complete until you have made it so clear that you can explain it to the first man you meet in the street. <laughs> and of course, of course, an exaggeration, but my, my question is, in order to pass on to new generations of mathematicians, the collecting knowledge of the previous generation, is it vital, and I really stress the word vital, is that, that the results have simple and elegant proofs, and, and not, uh, you know, take the proof of the structure of finite simple groups, which is, of course, immense. Is that important? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the passing mathematics on to subsequent generations, which is essential for the future, is only possible if every generation of mathematicians understand what they're doing and distill it out in such a form that it is easily understood by the next generation, which means it should be put in a simple, or simple of course is very, you know, many complicated things are simple, but when you have the right point of view, they, the first proof of anything may be very complicated, like very often the case, but if you understand it well, you strip it out, you redress it, eventually you can present it in a way which makes it look much more understandable, and that's the way you pass it on to the next generation. Without that, it would be impossible. We could never make progress. We would have this, all this messy stuff that we followed. So mathematics does depend on, on for its progress, on really having a sufficiently good grasp and understanding of the fundamentals that they can be presented in as simple a way as we can to our successor. And that we've been remarkably successful over the centuries in, in doing that. And you think, otherwise, how could we possibly be where we are? In the 19th century, People said, so much mathematics, done. how can anybody make any progress? Well, yeah, we have, but you do it by various devices, one of which is to, you generalize, you put all things together, you unify by some new ideas, you simplify logical structures. So you, you, we've been very successful in mathematics in, in making that for several hundred years. I don't see any reason, and there's no evidence that it stopped because new people, new mathematicians are coming along. You know, I mean, lots of young, every year, the new young generation mathematicians come along and make enormous progress. How do they learn it all? You know, they must, it, it must be that I think we, we have been successful in doing that. And so that's why it's important that we, we, we not only make discoveries, that we, we, we understand them and organize them sufficiently well that they are, can be passed on to the next generation. I think it's very important. I find it disconcerting when I talk to some of my young colleagues because they have reorganized material and have absorbed a great deal. Um, and understand things uh, more simply so that when we do talk and I don't understand their language, finally I'll say, oh, is that all you mean? <laughs> but they have a new conceptual framework which allows them to encompass a lot more uh, than I could. Uh, needing a great deal. So I'm impressed with the progress and at the same time 
impatient because often enough, uh, because of language barriers, I don't, it takes me a long time to see what they're really saying. Mm -hmm. I heard you, Michael Atiyah, mention that one reason for your choice of mathematics as your career was that uh, you didn't have to remember so many th facts by heart. Yeah, yeah. But uh, nevertheless, working with so broad mathematical fields and, and visions, a lot of threads had to be woven together and um, new ideas had to be de developed. So could you tell us a bit about how you work best and how new ideas do arrive, and in particular, whether there is something like sudden inspiration, seemingly out of nowhere? Well, you know, I mean, uh, I, I think my fundamental approach to, to doing research and inquiry is always really to ask questions. You know, you ask yourself, why is this true? There's something mysterious, or there's a proof that you think is very complicated. So you're constantly probing and asking questions. In fact, I used to say as a kind of joke, that the best ideas come to you during the course of a bad lecture. You go to hear somebody give a lecture, it's a terrible lecture, the beautiful result, the result is beautiful, but the proof is terrible. You spend your time trying to find a better one. You don't listen to the lecturer. Um, so I think it's always asking questions for yourself. You, you sort of, and the questions can be about problems, and they can be about anything. But you, you, you simply have to have an inquisitive mind to ask questions, and, and some of these, out of 10 questions you ask, nine, lead nowhere and one you know, leads somewhere productive. So you have to constantly search for sort of uh, making, being inquisitive and, and they can go in any direction. And of course if they go in an entirely new direction you've got to learn some new material. But usually if you ask a question or maybe say solve a problem, it has a background and that means you understand where the thing comes from. If you understand where a problem comes from then it makes it easy for you to understand the tools that have to be used to it because you can immediately interpret them in terms of your own context. So, I could, and until when I was a student, I learned things by going to lectures and reading books. After that, I read very, very few books. I talked to people. I would learn the essence of analysis by talking to a Hormander or something like that. And <clears throat> I would be asking questions because I was interested in a particular problem. So I would understand it had to do with the index. So you, you learn new things because you connect, relate them to the old ones. And that way you can start to spread around in different directions. So I'd say there are two things for me that were important. One is looking at problems, concrete problem, problem or a concrete question, uh, not a theory. I don't say I'm going to develop a theory. I don't know how to do that. But I would ask key questions, I solve a problem, and the problem may lead to you to develop a theory. And that's the way it should go, at least in my view. Um, and then if you come from a problem or from a background and you need to move into a new area, then you have an introduction. You have already an entree into the field and you have a point of view. and that he, so. Those two things together are the way I've, I've, I've worked, really, myself. And part of that, of course, is interacting with other people because you move into new fields, you have to learn the language, and you talk to experts who are able to distill out of their experience the essentials. I didn't learn all the things from the bottom upwards. I went to the top and you know, got a sort of insight into how you think about analysis or whatever it is. I seem to have some built-in sense of how things are supposed to be in mathematics. So when I uh, resonated with Michael's statement about getting ideas in a lecture because I would say that's not the way it's supposed to be. It's just not going to be that. Not just the proof. That's just not the way it's supposed to be. So I often feel that way uh, when 
I'm confronted with a lecture or somebody's telling me something or I read something and I just shake my head and say, no, that's not. And that's how I learn. I'll sort of say, it's not supposed to, here's the way it should be. And then I try. And of course, 99 and 100 times I'm wrong. But I learn from that. And then I go see how uh, somebody else has succeeded in the way that I had wanted to. And then I learn what the technique is and the procedure is, what the ideas are. But I ultimately always go back to feeling that, that my internal sense of mathematics tells me the way to go. That wastes a great deal of time, I must say. But when I'm right, it's usually different than what other people are thinking. And there's some originality associated with that. Both of you have passed ordinary retirement age for several years ago. But we are all impressed that you are still very active mathematicians. And, um, and even you have chosen retirement positions, visiting positions remote from your original working places. So what are the driving forces for keeping up your work? And is it wrong that mathematics is a young man's game, as Hardy put it once? Well, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's no doubt true that mathematics is a young man's game in the sense that uh, you're at your peak when you're you know, in your 20s or 30s in terms of intellectual concentration and ability and originality, I think. Uh, but of course, you compensate that by experience and uh, other factors. Um, uh, but, um, and it's also true that, you know, I think if you haven't done anything significant, you know, by the time you're 40 or something, you're not going to suddenly uh, go. But of course, it's wrong to say that you have to decline. You can carry on. Uh, in, and, and if you have the, you know, if you're the area that we're working in where you are diversifying into different fields, this gives you a broad coverage. I mean, the, the kind of mathematician who has difficulty maintaining momentum all his life is the person who decides to work in a very, in a narrow field with great depth, spends all his life trying to solve the Poincaré conjecture, whatever it is. And whether he succeeds or not, you know, after 10 or 15 years in this field, you, 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 you exhausted the mind. And then what do you do? Unless you have other, and it's too late then to diversify in some sense. The length of time that you can go on being active in mathematics is very much dependent on the width of your coverage. If you're the sort of person who chooses to make a restriction to yourself to a specialized field, you will find it harder and harder because all that's left is harder and harder technical problems in your own area. And then the younger people are better than you. Where you might have some contribution to make is in terms of perspective, breadth, interactions. And so uh, co a broad coverage, I think, is the secret of a happy and successful long life. I mean, in mathematical terms, I don't think there's any, any, I think of any counterexample, I don't think of anybody who's worked in one field all their life and gone on doing brilliant work. I think that's, I'd be hard put to, to find somebody. <laughs> when I was a graduate student in Chicago, I became a graduate student after uh, spending some time in the Philippines and second, at the end of the Second World War. I was, uh, of course, behind everybody, not having had a mathematics education as an undergraduate. And what shocked me was that uh, these fellow graduate students said if they hadn't proved the Riemann hypothesis by age 29, they might as well commit suicide. <laughs> uh, I thought that was just infantile. And age has never meant much to me. 
it's the enthusiasm uh, for what I'm doing or what I see before me uh, that keeps me going. And I'm still very excited about mathematics and what I'm doing. And uh, of course, I'm constantly checking with many of my younger colleagues uh, to be sure that I'm not daydreaming and I'm not fooling myself that what I'm doing or what we are doing uh, is interesting. So I think that's one thing that keeps me active and happily active in mathematics. The other is, in a way, a joke. Physics needs us. String theory needs new <coughs> mathematical ideas. Who are they going to get it from? But Sir, Ma <laughs> Sir Michael and me. <laughs> so I'm very excited about what's going on, and I'm excited about participating in it, and I think that's why I'm still active. I'm a bit affiliated with the European Mathematics Society by its newsletter, <coughs> so I would like a question about that to you, yeah. Michael, because uh, you have been very much involved in the startup yeah. phase in the establishment of the European Mathematical Society around 1919. There were two things that happened. One was the sort of collapse of the Berlin Wall and the broadening in Europe. The other was, it was the same, more, more or less the same time at which mathematicians in general, both in Europe and the United States, began to be more aware of their need to be socially involved, let's say. The need that mathematics has an important role to play in society, the need to, in fact, interact with the public. And so instead of being shut up in their universities and doing just their mathematics, they felt there was some pressure to get out and get involved in education, get involved in... And so the European Mathematical Society, I think it almost got founded, took on this role on a European level in some sense. And, you know, the European Mathematical Congress is, I was involved in the one in Barcelona. And, you know, we definitely made an attempt to interact with the public. And I think, so I think the, 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 these are definitely additional opportunities over and above the old-fashioned role of learning societies. Uh, and so I think there are a lot of opportunities, both in terms of the geography of Europe and in terms of the broader reach. Of, uh, and I'm sure I think it seems to be active and going along well. I don't, I don't know enough about to make criticisms or, or, or congratulations. But I think it, it, it's, it's timing, it was fortunately a right time. And now, of course, it's, Europe is uh, a large, 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 and even ever larger. Although when I was there, it was very interesting. We were discussing where was the boundaries of Europe. And I remember me meeting some people from Georgia who told me very clearly that the boundary of Europe is on this river on the other side of Georgia. Georgia is part of Europe. <laughs> you know, they were very keen to make sure that the frontier of Europe was stretched out there. But uh, now the politicians are also having to decide where is the boundary of Europe. But it was an interesting, interesting process. But of course, mathematicians are, are, are much, on the one hand, they, they, I mean, on the one hand, mathematicians have much more in common than politicians. They, they, we are international in our mathematical outlook, so it's easy to talk with colleagues in other countries. On the other hand, mathematicians are much more argumentative and legal. I mean, so when it comes to the fine details of a constitution, then they're terrible, you know. <laughs> they're worse than lawyers. <laughs> But they, 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 in principle, the goodwill was there for collaboration, and uh, um, so I think it has. A, you know, it's good that it exists. It's good that it has a broad, and, and that it's. It, but it should think really rather broadly about how it's evolving as Europe evolves, as the world evolves, as mathematics evolves. You know, what what should its function be? How should it relate to national societies? How should it relate to the American Mathematical Society? How should it relate to the governmental bodies? It's an opportunity, but. It, 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 which makes it more, I think it has a role to play. 
Just to balance the whole interview, I would like to ask a, a last question, namely if you could tell us in a few words about your main interests besides mathematics. Well, he's a great tennis player. Was <laughs> I, I love to play tennis, and I try and do so two or three times a week. And that uh, refreshes me, and I think has helped me work so hard in mathematics all these years. Well, I, I, I don't have his energy. I, I, I like to walk in the hills, in the Scottish hills, uh, which is why I retired partly to Scotland, because in Cambridge, which is where I'm before, the highest hill was about this big. <laughs> so, we, we, and so I like the hills, which of course, you have even bigger ones in Norway. And so I, I spend a lot of my time you know, outdoors. And I, also, I also have a state garden. I plant trees. I like, I like nature. And, and so that's my relaxation. And I say, I think if you do mathematics, you need a good relaxation, which is something not intellectual, but something, you know, and so being outside in the open air and, and climbing the mountains or looking after your garden, these are things that are, I think, very, very good for it. Of course, you actually you can do mathematics while you're doing these things. You go for a long walk in the hills or, or work in your garden and your ideas can still carry on. My wife complains we go for a long walk and she knows that I'm thinking about mathematics. <laughs> to end up with... Thank you very much for this interview on behalf of the Norwegian, the Danish and the European Mathematical Society. Thank you very much. Thank you. We enjoyed that. Yeah.